0: This is the CIIS Public Programs podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramotosholloni land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website. CIIS.edu and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.
1: Hello, Toko Pa. Welcome to virtual CIIS. So happy to be here with you, Rachel. Thank you. Yeah, I'm psyched to be talking about your wonderful book, Belonging. You can see my copy is bristling with bookmarks. Um, I wonder if you'd like to start us off by reading uh, a piece out of the book. You mentioned that maybe you might read the invocation at the beginning of the book.
2: Yeah, sure. I'd love
1: to. Mine is is, uh, a lot more mangled than yours.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I would love to read that. So this is a blessing that I added at the very last minute as the book was about to go to print, and um, my friend who is typesetting the book uh, said, well, there's one page that's blank and we need something to fill up that page. And we were literally hours from going to print. And I said, well, I feel like I've said everything because I had spent years writing the book. But I um, decided to sit down and, and try to just write a final blessing, which encapsulated the hopes that I had for the reader as they moved through the book. And this is what came out. For the rebels and the misfits, the black sheep and the outsiders, for the refugees, the orphans, the scapegoats and the weirdos, for the uprooted, the abandoned, the shunned and invisible ones, May you recognize with increasing vividness that you know what you know. May you give up your allegiances to self-doubt, meekness, and hesitation. May you willing, may you be willing to be unlikable and in the process be utterly loved. May you be impervious to the wrongful projections of others, and may you deliver your disagreements with precision and grace. May you see with the consummate clarity of nature moving through you that your voice is not only necessary, but desperately needed to sing us out of this muddle. May you know, may you feel short up, supported, entwined and reassured as you offer yourself and your gifts to the world. May you know for certain that even as you stand by yourself, you are not alone.
1: That's beautiful. That sounds really heartfelt as well. Yes, absolutely. So so let's start by situating you. Um, where are you? Where are you right now? What, what land are you on? I am Canadian. I live in British Columbia on Vancouver
2: Island, which is uh, most people have heard of Vancouver. But if you get onto a boat and sail into the sea westward uh, for about two hours, you get to my island, <laughs> which is actually quite a big island. And uh, we have the city of Victoria on this
1: island here. And how long have you belonged in that part of the world?
2: Well, um, I have lived here before, but my husband and I just moved here, actually, um, literally four days before the lockdown and the pandemic uh, took hold here in Canada. So uh, before that, I was living on a different island for about 10 years. So I've been on the coast for a while.
1: so I actually use your book when I teach Jungian dream work, because I, I think it really gives a flavor of the Jungian work in a way that is not, um, not too heady and theoretical, but actually gives people a feel of what it's like to do the work. Um, so you're not an analyst, but you're clearly steeped in the Jungian work. Can you situate us where you are in the, in the world of the Jungian um, theory and practice?
2: Mhm yeah so i was actually raised in a sufi community and um and there were a lot of intersections interfaith intersections in the sufi world um, and on my shelves, uh, well, I should say on the community bookshelves, uh, there, were all, there were all kinds of literature that would lean in, in the direction of, um, you know, everything from the poetry of Rumi and Tagore and Khalil Gibran and that kind of thing, but then also into Carlos Castaneda and some of the Jungian stuff as well. Um, and so I had very powerful dreams when I was a young person. Uh, so powerful that um, that I uh, began to become quite obsessed with dreaming and experimenting in different dreaming states. Um, but it really wasn't until I was about 19 years old that I discovered a book called Man and His Symbols which is a very famous sort of Jungian uh, anthology from different Jungian analysts with a foreword by Carl Jung. And when I read this book, it was like discovering my lost... Um, civilization, (laughs) a community of people who were speaking a language that I recognized instantly as my own. Um, They were creating a topography, a world that made sense to the way that my spirit and, and soul was inclined and also my intellect. Um, And so that sort of began my love affair with all things Jungian. And uh, later in life, um, I ended up working at the Jung Foundation of Ontario for a number of years. Um, And that was a real boom because that was a period in my life uh, that happened to coincide with some of the great living Jungians of the time would pass through that foundation because a lot of the analysts were being trained out of there. Um, But I should also add that there came a point after years of being in that community where I felt its limitations, um, that there was something deeper, more visceral, more feminine that I was craving when it came to dream work. And that's when I started to veer off in my own directions. And in some ways back to the beginning, you know, because I think um, a lot of the deep, Sufi teachings that I was raised with uh, hit that spot that I found was missing for me and then of course many um, indigenous practices around dreaming I became really fascinated and curious about as well because uh, I'll just add that all ancient people that we know about um, have some sort of dreaming belief system dream practice and um, I was interested in that level of you know bring Dreaming back to the people, and not necessarily having to, you know, go through rigorous academic hoops
1: to to be able to decipher one's dreams. Well, um, who are some of the great Jungians who inspired you? Well, Marion Woodman. I you know, was wondering whether you were going to mention her. Yes, yes. I I was
2: so blessed to be able to uh, be in her presence and hear her speak and teach. Um, James Hillman, um, James Hollis, um, who else? Well, my friend Gary Sparks, J. Gary Sparks, was a huge influence on me. And um, yeah, many, many others, but those are the ones that come right off the top of my head.
1: Can you tell us a little about how Marion Woodman's work influenced you? you? You mentioned that the feminine became more and more of a draw to you, and that's certainly what I associate with her work.
2: So deeply, so deeply did she influence me. Um, So her... for, for those who aren't familiar with Marion Woodman's work, um, she uh, had her own experience with an eating disorder throughout her life. And this got her very curious uh, in her own studies to become an analyst about the importance of the body um, in relationship to the unconscious and in relationship to our dreams. And, um, so she wrote a number of books that tend to be a little bit um, chewy to read, and they they take a um, they take a different sort of brain that is comfortable with sort of circumambulating. You know, it's not such linear thinking, but she sort of speaks in symbols and it's very, very powerful stuff. Um, so I would say her emphasis on the feminine, her emphasis on the body and on movement and the primacy of uh, somatic experiencing, I think, is probably her greatest gift to me.
1: You know, one of the things I'm fascinated in right now is that there are a lot of people, especially um, Black women in America who are writing about the importance of the body, of pleasure um, and of rest. For example, I'm thinking um, Adrienne Marie Brown or the NAP ministry, where um, they're writing about how it's an important part of our resistance when our oppression is situated in the body to, to value the body and value rest and nourishment for the body. And that seems to be aligned with very much with your life and your approach
2: hmm rest as rebellion I think is really powerful, powerful work coming out of those um, those particular names that you mentioned, those people doing work. and I know Adrian's coming to to speak uh, for CIS in the next couple of days as we I think I, it's February, Oh, you'll have to check the CIS calendar, but I think it's within two or three days. So, um, yeah, she wrote a wonderful book called Pleasure Activism, and uh, she'll she'll be speaking about that in depth. But yes, yes, a form of resistance to actually reclaim, listen to, and center the body, uh, especially in conversations um, about... Uh, dreams and about the, the unconscious, um, there's so much that is communicated at a cellular level that we have learned to become so disconnected from, that we are quite alienated from in modernity. And so there is this work <laughs> to be done at uh, peeling off those layers of disconnection and often trauma and pain.
1: Um, to to come back into relationship with our bodies, it's like we've stopped belonging on so many levels, right? We don't belong inside of our own bodies. We don't belong inside of our own communities. We don't belong on the land. I'm I'm very interested in this in the theme of belonging, and I wonder what for you it means to belong. Well, that is a very large question,
2: <laughs> and I think, you know, I think that was the question that really drove me to write this book. Um, and in fact, at first, the question, uh, you know, even though it was much more personal, was well, where do I belong? You know, what is belonging? Why do so many people um, report to me personally that they don't have a sense of belonging, that they don't feel belonging in their lives? Um, it was it was these you know questions which really drove me to begin to ask my own dreams really um, those you know posing those questions and in that process you know I started to just journal. And, um, but I realized that the more I would write about it, the more I would dream about it, I would receive these really powerful dreams that seemed to be telling me that the way that we think about belonging is um, completely wrong and that there's a whole different way. We, you know, we see belonging, I think, uh, is very in popular culture, belonging is something that's outside of ourselves. And uh, we'll spend a whole lifetime really searching for that place of belonging, whether it's in a relationship, or whether it's in a community, or whether it's a spiritual path, or whether it's, you know, a geography, or whether it's our own bodies, or whether it's, you know, in relationship to nature, and the rest of the other than human beings. Um, And many of us search for that place of belonging in vain right, that we never find it. And we have this longing, this deep longing within us that actually drives us to make decisions, to make choices, to try and achieve belonging. and um, But it drives us unconsciously because we never bring these questions out into the open. So the more I started to write, the more dreams I received, and before you knew it, I was like, "Uh-oh, I think I'm writing a book." (laughs) And there, you know, for the next five years, I just went down very deep into this question, into all these different facets, um, and very much exploring my own personal relationship to belonging, and um, and how that deep. Longing had driven me personally um, to behave and to make choices um, that ended me up in places that aren't, weren't always true belonging, but actually places of what I call false belonging, which is a term that um, I borrowed from the great poet John Donahue false belonging. And um, so so, you know, what is belonging is a really big question, and I think the most important thing that we've done already is to um, articulate how there are many different forms of belonging, and each one has its own dimensions and its own subtleties. And um, but the but overall, what I think belonging is is a skill. It's not something that we find outside of ourselves, but it's a set of competencies that we in modern times have lost or you could say we've forgotten over many generations of displacement. and um, and so this is why the subtitle of my book is remembering Ourselves Home because I think that there that it is this process of remembering how, to, uh, to practice at belonging, how to turn belonging to a verb and not a
1: noun. That's fascinating. So what are some of your practices of belonging? Could you share a couple with us so we can get a sense of what you might mean? Yeah, of
2: course. So I would say there's probably about, um, you know, and I should just say before I get into it that I've really only scratched the surface of this topic. And um, there are many that I hope in their expertise will continue to, um, to create a map from different perspectives. Uh, But in the book, I have identified about 15 different competencies. Um, And the, the first one, I think, is really looking first into exile. It's impossible to talk about belonging without talking about its sister, uh, the the uh, the unknown sister, which is exile, and um, what I mean by that is that there are places in which we personally, we as a culture, and then our intergenerational lines have become exiled, have become cast out of places of true belonging. And the work, I think, is looking at each of those levels in depth and discovering for ourselves where we have been cast out or we ourselves learn from the example of our culture and our um, even our family systems. And intergenerationally, those places where we cast out Our um, parts of ourselves that are considered unworthy or unacceptable or um, just not valued in the culture that we live in. So to my feeling the work always begins at the most personal level at the level of the self and the personal history and then it expands into these larger questions of um, what are the qualities and values that our overarching monoculture espouses and aggrandizes, while at the same time denigrating, dismissing, and just uh, not even acknowledging other abilities and qualities. And um, it creates a kind of um, fragmentation, a splitting off, uh, into what the Jungians call the shadow. Um, it's the unacknowledged, the outcast, the black sheep, the rebels, the misfits, the weirdos. So, um, so this is done to us, and then we do it to ourselves and to others. And this is why we have, um, you know, rampant xenophobia and the othering that we're really struggling against right now in present time uh, because so much has been split off and put into what the poet Robert Bly calls the long black bag we drag behind us, which is his way of describing poetically the shadow, you know, all of that unacknowledged stuff has to go somewhere.
1: Yeah, so the internal work and the external work are very similar, right? They're very aligned, that which we split off and reject in ourselves, we project onto others and then split them off socially. So the, the social justice work and the internal work are very aligned there. Indeed, and um, in some ways
2: I would say just taking action on the outside without doing the internal work um, will not ultimately be effective because it is these deep patternings that are in our psyches and in the collective psyche that have to be unearthed uh, if we really want to have a vision for um, an inclusive and um, diverse uh,
1: culture. To share together. This might be a good time to ask you about the death mother. So you didn't talk about the negative mother. You didn't talk about the father so much. The death mother is a core figure in your book. And um, people have truly and deeply resonated with that when I've recommended the book to them. I wonder if you'd talk a little about the death mother for those people on the, the call or watching this video who, who don't know about that. She's okay, well, we're just we gonna figure.
2: dive right in. Then. <laughs> you know, I give people a, a, a three chapters before we get into the death mother because it's 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 really difficult material for a lot of people. Um, so, the death mother is uh, an archetype, and the, this the name of this archetype, the death mother, was originally coined by. Um, I would say, Carl Jung's greatest peer and uh, a genius unto herself, Marie-Louise von Franz. Um, and, and then there wasn't much said about this archetype until Marion Woodman took up the mantle and began to explore her in more depth. Um, and uh, she was going to write a book about the death mother She was going to write a book about the death mother, but um, she became unwell before she was able to do that. And so there's a wonderful um, uh, um, philosopher and uh, academic named Daniela Sief, who picked up um, by uh, interviewing Marion Woodman on The Death Mother. Um, and there's some incredibly rich material that she's put out. And um, you can find those PDFs uh, by looking up Daniela Sieff. Her last name is spelled S-I-E-F-F. And um, and I linked that on my website as well um, on a post that I did called The Death Mother. So the death mother is an archetype. And for for those who are listening who don't know what an archetype is, archetypes are really patterns of behavior that we um, have discovered or mythologists have discovered and psychologists have discovered that these patterns of behavior um, occur across cultures, and across era, and across time and space, really. And they repeat. These patterns of behavior repeat. And these archetypes can be um, personified in actual humans that are in our life um, or in ourselves. And, um, And so the Death Mother is a kind of Medusa-like archetype, who is filled with, I would say, more than rage, but actually um, an impulse to um, to kill. And um, when someone is possessed by this archetype, they may raise children who uh, feel like nothing they do is right and that they are unwanted and that they are rejected. And in fact, it would be better if they weren't alive at all. And when confronted by the death mother, uh, whether she's in our own mother or in our own grandmother or you know, some figure in our life who is raising us, there's a very profound wound that can be created from having a parent or um, a, uh, you know, caregiver, I'll use the term loosely here in this context, um, who who is possessed by that archetype. The the effect is that we can uh, begin to take on the death mother internally, which is to say um, we will learn to kill ourselves from uh going forward with any creativity in life so it's like the you know stopping us before we're even out of the gate and immediately it hits you right in the body it hits you with a feeling of paralysis or lethargy or you know a sense of uh turning to stone right that i can't move i i can't go forward Everything I do is worthless. So that's a, a little bit about the death mother. It's a very complex topic. The reason why I decided to write about the death mother is because I grew up with a parent who was very much possessed by that archetype. And, um, and so it was hugely important to me to examine... Um, the nature of that archetype how how it could have formed and what its effects on me Were And continue to be. So what I have to do battle with on a regular basis every time I sit down to write or to speak to you or whatever it is. Um, And so the reason why I decided to write about that was very personal. It was, it was an acknowledgement of a lot of the deep sense of unbelonging that I felt throughout my life was very much connected to this archetype living uh, internally
1: in me as a result of being raised. By a death hunter. You know, I'm fascinated by Medusa right now, actually, because of course, the thing about Medusa is that she was um, made into Medusa by, I think it was Athena, as punishment for Medusa being raped in Athena's temple. So, Medusa did nothing, um, but she had this. Um, terrible fate visited upon her. And so what it makes me think about is it makes me think about the death mother as something that arises or that we begin to channel uh, because of trauma. It reminds me of Donald Calshed's persecutor-protector archetype. Um, where it arises, it's an archetypal force that arises to protect us in the face of overwhelming trauma when we're little. But then sort of locks us up in a tower of protection and threatens to kill us if we try and move out of that sphere of, of protection slash jail. Mm.
2: Yes, and can also be incredibly destructive to the people who are in our lives. Um, and so I think the point that you're making is is really important because most people think about Medusa as being this evil, you know, snake-haired Witch who, who uh, turns people to stone, and there's no real exploration of how that came to be. Um, but the truth of the matter is that she was raped. By Poseidon, in um, I think it was Aphrodite's temple. Oh, it was Aphrodite's temple. That's right. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, and and so so the reason why I wanted to tie in tie in Daniela Sief's work is because she is an anthropologist, a biological anthropologist who um, looked into history and could see that there were many, there are many species, and then even in the human population. Um, that would uh, literally create, would literally enact infanticide in order to survive. So it was a matter of survival. They, she may not have had the resources, the s- community support, the um, the food, the health, whatever it may be, um, were, were somehow not available to her. And so... Um, so she enacted infanticide. I'm speaking of mostly in animals, but also in humans. In earlier humans, uh, a not uncommon practice. Sometimes we even hear these stories of the the foundlings. You know how how um, people uh, babies are orphaned um, from mothers who are unable or unwilling to take care of them. So there's some very interesting sort of biological roots in the evolution of that archetype that I try to explore in the chapter as well, thanks to the research of Daniela Sif.
1: I must look her up. Yes, yes, she's amazing. Um, another piece I would absolutely love for you to read if you're um, up for that is your beautiful Black Sheep Gospel Um Uh, which people I think might resonate with, which is a sort of a a clarion call and an encouragement to those of us who may have felt addressed by your initial invocation to urge us to really um, be ourselves, right? And, And adopt some of those practices of radical belonging. And we could also say decolonization to find our authenticity underneath what we have been colonized by. So if you would be... I'm willing to read that black sheep gospel I would love to hear it.
2: This is actually a, a loose homage to Alice Walker uh, because she's one of my favorite authors and um, in Temple of My Familiar the incredible novel that she wrote um, she she has a section in her book called uh, The Gospel According to Shug," which is a wonderful piece I, I recommend uh, if you haven't read that book yet go and grab it it's it's potent stuff um so i wrote the black sheep gospel and uh it's it's got these 13 um commandments <laughs> so i'll read them to you number one give up your vows of silence which only serve to protect the old and the stale number two unwind your vigilance soften your belly open your jaw And speak the truth you long to hear. Number three, be the champion of your right to be here. Number four, know that it is you who must first accept your rejected qualities, adopting them with the totality of your love and commitment. Aspire to let them never feel outside of love again. Number five, Venerate your too-muchness with an ever-renewing vow to become increasingly weird and eccentric. (laughs) Number six, send out your signals of originality with frequency and constancy, honoring whatever small trickle of response you may get until you reach a momentum. Number seven, notice your helpers and not your unbelievers. Number eight, remember that your offering needs no explanation. It is its own explanation. Number nine, go it alone until you are alone with others. Support each other without hesitation. Number 10, become a crack in the network that undermines the great towers of establishment. Number 11, Make your life a wayfinding, proof that we can live outside the usual grooves. Number 12, brag about your escape. <laughs> Number 13, send your missives into the network to be reproduced. Let your symbols be adopted and adapted and transmitted broadly into the new culture we're building
1: together. <laughs> That's lovely I know there's I know at least one person in the audience who will be completely thrilled by that and resonating with it as it permeates their cells um, and i'm I'm wondering um, what some of the qualities of that new culture that you would like to see us building what what you see arising already uh, today hopefully in parallel with this we've got this um, Archetypal, astrological struggle going on still, I, I believe, between Saturn influences and Pluto influences. We've got this new. we've entered the age of Aquarius, there's a lot of stuff up. Mercury's retrograde. There's, a, there's an enormous kind of churning thing happening right now, this big struggle between the forces of repression and the forces of um, revolution, I guess you could say, in a, in a, in a good sense. I wonder what um, some of the qualities are that you see in the new culture that we need to to grow. Yeah, we're in
2: a really tough time right now, uh, with so much chaos and um, opposition, and but I believe what's happening is a kind of shattering before the reconstitution. I believe we're being collectively initiated in this time. And when I say initiated, what I mean is that um, the, the, the very way that we think in binary terms that is so divisive and black and white is not going to work in the future. And um, I think what we are going to need to learn is ambiguity. I think we're going to need to let go of certainty and allow ourselves to get more comfortable with disagreement and diversity of beliefs and diversity of cultures Um instead of trying to make everything fit into this great monoculture. And so I think what we're feeling right now is the tension of our um, disagreements with the status quo. And my hope for the future is that those people who have been marginalized, the human people and the other than human people, um, will begin to have more of a voice, more of a place, and um, more of an influence in the creation of the new world. And um, I I think this begins with, you know, it may seem like a grand plan and we may seem quite far off from all of that, but I think each of us has this private gateway into that practice of inclusion and belonging it starts with the self it starts with looking into our own shadows and discovering what has been split off from us and reclaiming it and standing up for it in our own um estimation but also in the spheres that we move in And as we grow a greater tolerance for that diversity of characters that exists in our own unconscious, um, there is a chance that it will, um, that a beautiful symmetry will occur on the outside in bigger and bigger ways as more of us do this work.
1: I'm, I'm very aware that we're too Privileged white women having this discussion and touching on issues of inclusion and social justice and diversity. And I'm wondering if you have any opinions as to what other white women like us can do to actually put our feet on the ground and our, get our hands dirty in this work. Mm
2: yeah well you know my my particular area of expertise is working with the psyche, and so i um I have devoted my life to working with dreams and um the reason why I keep bringing conversation back to this is because I think everything that exists in the world first occurs on the um, first occurs in the imagination in the imaginal realms. Uh, which is different from, um, say, just dreaming something up during the day, but it is actually the deep fabric of the way that we and the world are created is through the imaginal. Um, So, um, but it's not enough to do inner work, we must be able then to, to walk that word, work into the world. You know, I've seen a lot of People in the last um, couple of years make declarations in uh, social media spaces about what they stand for. And um, to some degree, I think that's helpful because it's good to uh, say what you stand for. But I think more it's more important to find the ways in which you have had or we have had blinders on. Uh, which is to say the ways in which there might only be white people in your social media newsfeed, There might only be white people in your day-to-day friend circle. There might only be white people on your bookshelves. Um, and so it becomes a kind of stagnant consciousness, you know. So it's really important to, to find the ways in which that stagnancy exists in our lives and to begin to physically try to diversify that, whether it's through educating yourself, I think is hugely, you know, number one. Um, and then fi- finding the many, many ways in which we can run our businesses, our friend circles use our influence in such a way that uh, amplifies those voices uh, for people of color but also for um, the environment because right now we're in the midst of a mass mass, the sixth mass extinction on planet Earth and um, we uh, very few people, not enough people are um, listening to the needs of the uh, ecosystem in which we are embedded and um, so there's a lot there's a lot of work to be done and 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 I don't want people to feel overwhelmed with um, how little we may be accomplishing um, with what we have but we have to start there with our small little corner and what we can do to to affect
1: real change. I'm convinced, actually, that um, I'm seeing people have dreams that would appear to be from the world, dreams of floods, dreams of fire, and so on. Are you noticing that in some of the work that you're doing with people? Stephen Eisenstadt, who who, um, teaches dream tending, talks about the anima mundi and how it it, it talks to us through certain dreams. Absolutely. I mean, I would almost
2: take that one step further and say that all dreams come from nature. Um, And why wouldn't they? Because um, it's a biological process to dream. You know, where else would they be coming from but the nature that is our bodies? <laughs> right. And these bodies are fruits of this larger ecosystem, um, which isn't to say that all dreams are not also to be taken personally and and are speaking about the um, the personal apocalypse or the personal revolution that we happen to be going through. Um, I think there's a simultaneous simultaneity between those two things of course we would be having apocalyptic dreams or um, you know tsunami dreams or disaster dreams things like that because we are in this time of great upheaval Uh, but simultaneously something is really shifting for us and in our consciousness hopefully um, for many of us anyway. So I do these things. I, I, I often take both levels at once. So when I'm working with a dream, I'm certainly looking at the individual's um, unfoldment, but also the unfoldment of the larger collective, which is that ecosystem that we are all a part. And, uh, you know, often I, we back before the pandemic, you know, we used, to, I used to host these, um, these retreats, and I'm starting to do some of that online now. Uh, but whenever we get a group of dreamers together in a community, and over a course of a few days, we begin to notice that we literally are an ecosystem. It's not a metaphor that actually our dreams are connected either through images or themes or questions that emerge from the circle. And it always amazes us. People who might not have never ever met each other will come together and we wake up in the morning and, you know, five or six people in the circle will have dreamed about cats, you know, or something like that, that is you know, more than can be dismissed as a coincidence. Um, And I I think the reason is the this would happen much more often if we actually practice dream work in communities or families uh, on a regular basis Uh, but we don't we tend to live quite isolated and nuclear lives Um, but when you do practice this you get a glimpse into the miracle that is our connectedness and certainly, there are much larger pieces which are attempting to work themselves out through us.
1: I've got, I've got, my mind is going in, in different directions <laughs> with what you just said. I think I want to come back to um, the theme of of working things through. You talk a lot about the role of pain and suffering in. Um, moving us out of those old structures, right? And how that can be a path of initiation for people. Can you say a little bit more about that and maybe how that has um, moved in your own life? Yeah, we we touched earlier on this idea
2: uh, idea of exile, and um, and that in the search for belonging, uh, to understand how to practice belonging, we really have to dig deep into what are the origins of our sense of exile. And this, as I mentioned, happens on at least three different levels, the personal, the cultural, and then the ancestral, you know, and intergenerational. Um, So after we have done that and identified where those places of separation and wounding have taken place, um, there can be... um, a kind of an initiation that happens because once you see something, it's very hard to unsee it. Yes, and and so once you see something, it's like lifting wool from your eyes, and and often the individual once they've seen something like that, um, a period of initiation. I I call it initiation by exile because it's a period where it may cause us to break from a place of false belonging, whether that was a relationship or whether that is a place of work that didn't um, allow us to be entirely ourselves. Or um, it may be um, a a group that we break from or are exiled from. And this starts off this initiation process. And sometimes that can look like illness. It can look like disease. It can look like some kind of break. So anything that uh, kind of slams the door shut on the old way of life, the old, you can't go back. It doesn't exist anymore. And yet, You don't know where you're going next or who you're actually even going to be after this process, however long that's going to take. And in a way, we're collectively going through that with the pandemic right now, right? We've been collectively exiled from life as we know it kind of thing. And we have no idea what's going to happen next. Um, But this can also happen at the level of the body a kind of crisis of some kind and it's difficult to make meaning out of things like this because the pain can be so intense can be so severe and so alienating that there is a seduction there to become cynical or become lost in a depression, or become uh, hopeless and lose faith. But I believe the task in times of exile is really to turn towards the soul, to work at... um, pulling back our allegiances to the outside world and its demands and its cues and its permissions and its notifications, and instead find this inner guidance, which for some people could be quite wounded if it has been mistreated in the past, if we've been taught not to trust our feelings, if we've been taught that our feelings don't matter or that our bodies don't matter. But in these times of exile, what else do you have but that? And so you're confronted with it. You turn towards it. You have to face it. And that's when you begin to receive dreams. And um, sometimes these dreams can be terrifying and hard and full of trauma and pain And so this is when it's really good if you have a lot of those really terrifying dreams. It's really good to have a mentor, someone who has a skillfulness with dreams to help you hold that container and who can help put those pieces together that seem chaotic and nonsensical. Um, um, But it's also not impossible to do some of this work on one's own. And I, I really do like to empower people to learn the language of their dreams so they can begin to have that very direct relationship with their inner guidance. And in the dreams, even those really scary ones and painful ones, there is always some sort of twinkle some something redemptive and it may be very small and it may be hard to find and it may be muffled and buried under a lot of garbage but we have to push back that stuff to amplify that small voice to um like cradling a flame that wants to go out and begin to breathe onto that flame to 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 grow its power and it may just look like a little twinkle at first but that flame over time if we tend to it and care for it and enact ritual around it and seek support with it will grow into hours and those hours grow into days and those days grow into years And and, and eventually, the voice of the instinct, the voice of the originality of our origins, of our intuition, of our inner knowing, let's just put it that way, gets stronger and stronger and stronger until it's infallible one day. And then even if you continue to go through illness and to go through hardship, you still know what you know to be true. It isn't, um, you know, sometimes there's a magic formula that I think some spiritual traditions try to put on illness and say, if you just discover, you, you know, what uh, emotional baggage you have that you haven't worked out, then your illness will magically disappear. And I think that's a very violent thing to teach people, actually. Leaving the um, victim, Right. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Blaming the victim. It, you know, it's uh, suggested that, you know, you're not, you haven't done your emotional work and that's why you're sick. This is an appalling thing for anybody to say to anybody who's unwell and usually comes out of a discomfort and fear of one's own uncertainty, Um, So just a hello to any of you listening out there who have had that said to you. Um, Just know that this is a very wrong-headed approach, uh, because life is chaotic and unpredictable, and sometimes illness doesn't go away, and sometimes hardship doesn't go away. However, we can
1: choose to make meaning from it. If people are interested in in discussing more of this with you and learning more about the way you work, i I know you hinted at the fact that you are perhaps writing a secret book about which you don't want to say anything because you're presumably nourishing that little flame and keeping it safe. But um, what how can they how can they get more of you? How can they get more of your work? Well, well you know, I have been posting on social media every
2: single day. For about what is it like nine years? Occasionally, I miss a few days, but I treat social media as a place to um, to put uh, poetry into the world, to generate um, inspiration and uh, thoughtfulness and soulfulness in the world. So you can find me on Instagram, and I'm on Facebook. Um, and, I, and I post in both places. So that's a really easy way to get um, a, a dose of soulfulness every single day. Um, and if you want to learn more about dreams, I have a course called Dream Drops, which is an introductory course. So if you um, are struggling with dream recall, you know, you're, you kind of don't know where to start. That's a great, it's a four-week course. And uh, it um, I deliver uh, a Uh, A three to five minute lesson every single day for a month, which will take you deeper and deeper into relationship with your dreams. And I call it dream drops, because I believe that uh, with every drop of a dream, um, moisture is restored to our lives. So instead of that kind of spiritual aridity that we have where, you know, there's a sense of meaningless and disconnection, it's a way of um, adding water to the soil so things can grow. Um, and, uh, what else? You can find my website, tokopa.com. You just have to remember to put the hyphen in. So it's t-o-k-o-p-a.com. And I keep everything more or less there. So there's, um, of course, you know, the book, you're welcome to, to find the book. It's on sale everywhere. I think you can find it just about anywhere. And if your bookstore doesn't have it, you can ask them to order it in for you. Um and what else can I say? Yeah. I think I think that's enough for now. I'd love for people to stay in touch, so come find me. Where does your name come from, Tokupa? Well, you know, most people assume that I named myself this name because it's so kooky. And it's a very West Coast thing to do, you know, to give yourself a funny name. Um, <clears throat> but it's actually my given name. And it's a Maori name. And I don't have any relationship to the Maori people. But my parents found the name in a book of poems. Um, and there were some, some Maori poems and they, that talked about the uh, creation myth of the Maori people. And Tokopa is the parent of the mist, the parent of the mist in the Maori cosmology, Um, and uh, so you know it was it was a hard name to grow up with, very big shoes to fill. (laughs) I'm working on it, Um, but you know once I found my path and started working with dreams, being the parent of the mist, carrying a name that was the parent of the mist, I like to think of that mist as the veil between the worlds and that somehow I'm I'm helping to occupy that space so it I'm working on making it fit for me now
1: well you certainly live in the misty islands up there in the sure also <laughs> mm-hmm. that sounds lovely sitting in California where we're waiting for we're still waiting for our rain so it's lovely to have a little transmission of the mist and the and the water oh I wish I could send you some I pray for that all the time. Thank you. Yes, we do too. Pa, this has been such a wonderful, rich conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and our listeners too,
0: Rachel. Thank you for asking such juicy questions. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California, We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fork. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.